Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. It's not only a place seated along a picturesque isthmus and circumscribed by four lakes when viewed on a map from above, but also a place shunted squarely in the mouth of madness once you're actually on the ground. As time and space battle it out, Madison is a city surrounded by reality on all sides, yet still defined by a certain surrealism. It is, in fact, less a physical place as much as an idea or metaphysical construct of that same place. It's an abstraction of America and the requisite American dream, while at the same time, curiously enough, serving as the state capital. Bureaucracy, fantasy, and a conceptual anarchy all occupy the same real estate that was an unlikely urban center to begin with. 19th century swampland, in both the literal and figurative sense, bought for a song by a federal judge in 1829. The capital city was thus, in some sense, always destined to be the Mad City. And then some. That's from Mad City, the true story of the campus murderers that America forgot by Michael Artfield. I am Mike Hewerty from American Ghost Walks, and I'm here with... Jeff Finnup of Badgerland Legends. Now, after you read that, Mike, I'm happy I live in the suburbs. <laughs> right, and I'm, and you know, and I'm right on the east side here, so I guess I, I'm in the the center of the conceptual anarchy. Well, today on Wisconsin Legends podcast, we're going to talk about a series of murders that happened here in Dane County and Madison specifically, starting in the late 1960s, that I didn't even know about till a few years ago. Well, the thing about Madison is it's known to be a safe city, right? kind of has a small town vibe. It's a college place. But what not a lot of people realize is that it's a very transient city. Everybody I know here didn't grow up here. And it seems like everybody that grew up in Madison, they usually go off to bigger places. It's an interesting mix. And you have so many students that come in for a few years at a time too. You got people coming in for school. You have people that work in the tech sector like Epic. They'll be in and they'll be out within 10 years doesn't seem like a lot of people plant roots here, and that might be behind some of this. It definitely might be one of the reasons that people do not think about the capital city killings probably as much as they would in another place, even though they're easily the most famous series of unsolved murders here in Madison. And it's one of the, you don't want to say greatest hits of of true crime, but it's maybe greatest shames because it is this string of unsolved murders that happened in the small towns of Madison. So when you compare it to other cities and the clearance rate of the murders, it's really bad on the batting average. Yeah. And with a name like Capital City Killings or Mad City Murders, you think it would get a lot more national attention. Well, we're doing our best to help with that today. All right. We're going to get it on the map. <laughs> Between 1968 and 1984... The University of Wisconsin in Madison was the site of a series of brutal murders that left eight young women dead. The killer was never caught, and the crimes remain unsolved. Let's talk about the first victim, Christine Rothschild. She enters university in 1967 after graduating with honors in Chicago, Illinois. On a dreary May evening in 1968, a male student discovers her body hidden behind some shrubbery outside of Sterling Hall a mathematics building located on North Charter Street. 
Sterling Hall would later become famous in 1970 because it was the site of the Sterling Hall bombing, the New Year's gang that bombed it and killed somebody when they were trying to protest the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. That's its own Wisconsin Legends. Chicago Tribune, Chicago, Illinois, 29th May, 1968. This is their story about Christine Rothschild. She had been stabbed 14 times and a piece of cloth was knotted around her neck. Her leather gloves had been placed in her mouth, apparently to prevent her from crying out, officials said. A resident of the dormitory reported seeing Miss Rothschild at 6 a.m. in the dorm, and two students said that they thought they saw her near Sterling Hall at about 10 a.m. The coroner said an autopsy showed that Miss Rothschild had eaten a large breakfast before she was killed. Police were making queries at restaurants to determine whether she was seen in a restaurant before her death. It is believed that she could not have eaten the breakfast in the dormitory. Among the clues, and this is in the newspaper, they spell clues C-L-E-W-S. I've seen uh, historical spellings of clues as C-L-E-W-S, so I don't know when that changed, but that's interesting. (laughs) Right, this is just 1968 in the tribute. Among the clues in the hands of the police are a number of knives and surgical blades found near the body. These have been sent to FBI laboratories to determine whether one of them was the fatal weapon. A meeting involving university, city, and county officials is scheduled for 3.30 p.m. tomorrow to discuss a recent upsurge in crime on the hilly, heavily wooded edges of the campus. Forty co-eds have been attacked since last September, most in recent weeks. Now, this article, it goes into the Christine Rothschild murder, and that's interesting to the people of Chicago because Christine Rothschild is from a wealthy Chicago family. She is a, a beautiful girl. She was a model in you know, Sears catalogs and stuff. She's not necessarily famous, but she's considered one of the upper class of Chicago. Sure. In fact, her parents thought of the University of Wisconsin as the safe choice for her. Compared to what we know about Chicago, at least in modern day, it seems like Madison is just eons more safe than Chicago Or if she wants to go to college in New York City, like these big cities, Mm -hmm. her parents like, well, you'll be much safer in Madison. Yes. quiet college, state capital, Wisconsin town. Yeah. And that's where she gets murdered. The Tribune's interested in her death, Chicago Tribune, because they normally wouldn't just cover a murder in Madison. You know, it would have to be something related to the people of Chicago and a wealthy Chicago family. Interestingly enough, while today we connect the Capital City killings with other murders that happened in Madison, back in 1968, the Chicago Tribune is trying to connect it to three other murders that happened in southeast Wisconsin and Chicago. And and they say, could this be connected, this Rothschild murder, because it seems like the murderer had picked the daughter of a wealthy Chicago family. Could it be connected to these others? And here are some of the others. And I'd never heard about these murders before because I'd only heard about stuff that happened in Madison. This is a famous murder that happened in Chicago, and they were wondering if it could be connected. Percy Killing, The 40-Year File. This is by Chuck Goldie, WLS News. So this is written on the 40th anniversary of this murder. Hmm. Sharon Percy Rockefeller still tries to comprehend the nightmare she was awakened by on the morning of September 8th, 1966. Inside her family's sprawling mansion perched above the beach on Lake Michigan, her twin sister Valerie lay dying. It wasn't possible. I didn't know what people were talking about, said Sharon. The last time I saw her was midnight and I had returned her raincoat to a closet which belonged to her in her bedroom and she was already asleep. And I said, good night, Val. And she murmured, good night. I mean, she heard me, and then around 5 o'clock, the tragedy happened. Tragedy began when someone used a glass cutter on the Percy back door and found his way to Valerie's second-floor room. She was stabbed and beaten to death. 
21-year-old Valerie Jeanne Percy had graduated from Cornell that summer and was two days away from postgraduate studies at John Hopkins University. In the days leading up to her murder, she was campaigning alongside her father. Her father was running for senator. So this is a wealthy Chicago family as well. His, her father's campaigning in 1966 to be the senator from Illinois. Val was going downtown all summer, so she was riding the L. That's the elevated train in downtown Chicago. She was walking to the office and she was out campaigning, Sharon said. Chuck Percy had already made his fortune as the head of Bell & Howell Corporation, had run unsuccessfully for Illinois governor, and was beginning a career in national politics. The murder of his daughter put the campaign on hold. But when several weeks passed without an arrest or even a solid suspect, Percy resumed campaigning. At stake was a highly coveted Senate seat about to be snatched from the incumbent Democrat Paul Douglas. Percy won the election and went on to serve in the Senate until his defeat in 1984. Was it burglary? Heck no. This person went there to kill Valerie Percy, and that's my belief 40 years ago, and that's my belief today, 40 years later, said Joseph D. Leonardi. Joe D. Leonardi knows murder. The former Chicago police superintendent was an Area 6 homicide cop in 1966, called into the Percy case when Kenilworth realized the murder was more than it could handle. She was found Sunday at 5 a.m. We got there Monday morning. It was 24 hours old. We get to the crime scene. There was none. No crime scene. The room where she was murdered was completely renovated. You cannot conduct a homicide investigation like this, said D. Leonardi. Why was it renovated? Right. Why had they cleaned up the crime scene before the police even got there? Yeah. Issues with evidence and crime scenes, that's going to come up again. It's going to be a theme here. In this podcast. Now's the next murder that the Tribune is saying it might be linked to, Christine Rothschild's murder. 4th of November, 1966. This is the Capital Times of Madison. Third Milwaukee area girl is found brutally slain. The body of an attractive 20 year old woman, stabbed 106 times, was found Thursday at suburban Menominee Falls in the plant she was employed as a receptionist. Waukesha County authorities said the body of Diane Olkwitz was discovered around 5 30 p.m. in the rear of a one story building housing the Kenworth Manufacturing Company and the Wilson Welding Company. Milwaukee police were called into the case because the slaying was similar to those of two Milwaukee girls stabbed to death in the last two months. Still unsolved are the deaths of Cheryl Thompson, 19, killed on October 17th, and Julia Beckwith, 10, killed on September 4th. These crimes were later solved. Killer Michael Lee Harrington admitted to them. But Coroner James Welch, who said Miss Olkwitz had been stabbed 106 times, said there were 18 stab wounds in her head. Officials said the weapon was an extremely sharp stiletto-type knife. They said it did not appear she had been molested sexually by the Slayer, who apparently struck without warning. So that's case number two in 1966. Case number three, Capital Times, Madison, Wisconsin, February 15, 1967. Crime Lab seeks clues to the slaying of a Kenosha teen. The state crime laboratory moved in today to help find new clues in the slaying of Mary Ellen Kaldenberg, 17, the fifth girl in southeastern Wisconsin to be stabbed in the last six months. The Tremper High School junior, whose frozen body was found in a junked hearse Monday in an auto scrapyard, had been stabbed 12 times in the neck, chest, forehead, and back with a blade-type weapon, Kenosha County Coroner Edward Wavro said Tuesday night. He said two chest wounds pierced her heart. He said her autopsy showed death was due to internal bleeding by stabbing, and the autopsy had been delayed because of the body's frozen condition. The crime lab would take samples and make further tests in the body today. Her brother said he cried like a baby when they told me Sis was dead. A report that the girl would likely have a closed casket brought new tears, he said. I cried and I cried when they told me that they might not show her, he said. I can't get a last look, and I liked it. She's still on the City of Kenosha cold case website. The City of Kenosha has their own cold cases. 
Mary Ellen Kaltenberg left home at approximately 8.30 p.m. on February 9, 1967 to go to the drugstore. On February 13th, her body was discovered in a junk vehicle. She was 17 years old and died as a result of multiple stab wounds. So they still have a cold case website that's got her murder in there. Okay, this is 1967, February. So we already have those five women in southeastern Wisconsin who've been stabbed and murdered. This so they're all murdered in the same manner. All, yeah, all stabbed to death. And not everyone was moved from the site or hidden, but they all stabbed head, chest. Yeah. They say a stabbing, especially 106 stab wounds, would be a crime of passion. That's a serious, like, that's not just going there, you want to hurt somebody. That's, you're making sure they're dead, and then you're going crazy. And then some, yeah. It's a frenzy. April 24th, 1967. This is from the Winona Daily News, Winona, Minnesota. Bodies of two Milwaukee women found in field. The bodies of two women who'd been missing since April 15th were found, tied, and riddled with stab wounds Sunday in a field in suburban New Berlin. Waukesha County District Attorney Roger Murphy said the bodies of Miss Cheryl Ann Packard, 22, of rural Pewaukee, and Miss Sharon Malone, 25, of rural Heartland, had been in the field a few days. He said the women were probably slain elsewhere and their bodies were dumped in the field later. We got a lot of things going, Murphy said when asked if police had any leads, but nothing we can reveal. No weapon has been found. The police had no one in custody. Murphy and New Berlin Police Sergeant Jack Bukowski said the women were each stabbed about five times in the chest. Miss Packard was also stabbed once in the abdomen and Miss Malone three times in the neck, they said. The women were last seen alive and together at a cocktail lounge in suburban Brookfield, about six miles northeast of the place their bodies were found. Police said one of the women's undergarments were missing and both were wearing skirts and blouses. The bodies were found by policemen behind a row of dead trees. They had their hands tied behind their backs with binder twine. Both apparently had been gagged, although Miss Malone's had worked loose and was found near her body. A statewide alert had been issued for the women last week after relatives had reported them missing. Miss Malone's stalled car was found several blocks east of the cocktail lounge where they were last seen. These murders are still unsolved as well. By the time we get to May of 1968, where Christine Rothschild's body is found outside of Sterling Hall here at the campus University of Wisconsin, young women in southeast Wisconsin northern Illinois are being brutally stabbed and left. I feel like if this happened today and we had this series of five women left for dead in a field, one a month. I mean, outrage. Yeah. What are the police Panic. doing? Yeah. You know, when I watch a horror movie like Halloween or Scream or something and you're watching a movie and you think like, oh man, five or six people got killed in this film. Like, that's no way. They'd catch the killer before that would happen in real life. There's no way they could just cut their way through a town like that. Serial killers can't work like that. Certainly did in Wisconsin here in the late 1960s. Yeah. I kind of wanted to bring up those cases because when you talk about the capital city killings, they just talk about the bodies that were piling up in Dane County over a course of, you know, 14 years, 16 years. However, these bodies were piling up all over the area. Long before. Yeah. And they were already trying to make connections in the late 1960s beyond this. I just thought that was interesting and also kind of scary, the amount of like really violent murder. Not the kind of murder where somebody got themselves into trouble by going to the wrong place, dealing with the wrong people, owing the wrong people yeah, money. Like a drug deal gone bad or some kind of gang-related. These were targeted. It was all younger women. You said the youngest was 10. Yes. The oldest was like college student. Right. Two women in their mid-20s. So it seemed very targeted to a specific group. 
and all done by stabbing. So it seems like there might be a natural connection. Right. Even if there's not a connection to these murders, the fact that people were getting away, that these are all unsolved murders that happened within the space of a couple of years, and it's the bodies just, they just start piling up. The senator's daughter is murdered and the in her own home, and the crime is never solved. Yeah. With all the political sway and all the pressure to find this senator or Senate candidate at the time's daughter, and still couldn't get it done. Still not enough protection to protect these other women who maybe aren't wealthy, but they certainly were brutalized. So over the years, more young women were abducted and murdered. Their bodies found in various locations, and the exact cause of death was often difficult to determine because they're found later. And this is the next one people connect in the capital city killings. Deborah Bennett, 20. Her body has been set on fire and left in a ditch a few miles from Cross Plains, which is a you know a small town. Yeah, right outside of Madison. Ten miles out of Madison. Wisconsin State Journal, July 27, 1976. Murder victim was last seen alive on July 10th. Deborah J. Bennett, the 20-year-old woman whose badly burned body was found last Wednesday in a country ditch near Cross Plains, was last seen alive on Saturday, July 10th at 7.15 p.m., walking barefoot on the west side of the 1400 block of Lofts Gordon Avenue, the Dane County Sheriff's Department said today. They said she was wearing a blue denim jacket and carrying a brown purse with a shoulder strap. Authorities say they still have no idea who may have killed the woman who wasn't positively identified until last Friday through teeth and a fractured collarbone she suffered when she was eight years old. Bennett had been arrested last month by Madison police as a suspect in a Williamson Street apartment burglary, but she was not convicted. A 30-member intra-county major crime investigating squad is handling the case. No one's ever arrested in Deborah Bennett's murder. Julianne Hall, 18. After being bludgeoned to death in 1978, her body was found buried near Wanakee. This is a Wisconsin State Journal, 24th of June, 1978. Body is identified as library worker. City and county investigators using dental records late Thursday identified the woman whose nude body was found the day before in a shallow grave along Woodland Road just off of Highway 12 west of Wanakee. The woman, Julianne Hall of Woodview Court, was a native of Fenimore and had worked since May 1st as a library assistant in the archive section of the Wisconsin Historical Society. Dane County Coroner Clyde Chamberlain Friday morning said investigators will continue the investigation and, quote, assume that a crime had been committed, unquote. He said the death was caused by blows to the head with a blunt instrument and the nude body also had numerous scratches and bruises. Tests are being conducted today to determine whether she had been molested. She's interesting because she's the daughter of Don and Betty Hall, who in March 1975 won $300,000 in the Illinois State Lottery. The couple was divorced between six and eight months ago, according to a Grant County court spokesman. Don Hall lives in Fenimore and Betty Hall now lives at a trailer court on Highway 12 outside Baraboo. So the curse of the lottery strikes yeah. again. They get rich, and then, unfortunately, it destroys their Tragedy family. ensues. Police late Wednesday asked the media to publish and broadcast a description of the body. Chamberlain said about 40 telephone tips about the missing woman were received. Major crime unit investigators are still seeking information about Miss Hall, who reportedly went drinking with some friends on Friday night. So that one also continues to go unsolved until the next Julie is killed less than a, a year later. Julie Spearschneider, 20. She disappeared in 1979 after looking to hitch a ride from an East Side club. Where is Julie Spearschneider? Manitowoc Herald Times, 5th of June, 1979. They fear the worst, that she was kidnapped, maybe raped, and then murdered. But the friends of Julie Spearschneider, a 20-year-old Madison woman missing for 10 weeks, have united in an extraordinary effort which they vow to continue until they find her, dead or alive. 
We're searching for something we hope we don't find. That's the hardest part, said Jack Smith, 31, the former owner of the downtown gourmet restaurant where Julie and a number of her friends worked. Smith speaks for the group of about 10 people working with Julie's parents and the police in an effort to find out what happened to her. When somebody close to you dies, you can deal with your grief, Smith said. Not knowing, we're denied even that, said Bridget Fairley, 21. She and Renee Guzman, 20, and Patty Lou, 20, were perhaps Julie's closest friends over the past few years. The four of them graduated from Memorial High School here in January, a semester ahead of schedule. They traveled together, worked together as waitresses, and often socialized together. In fact, it was Patty who last heard from Julie at about 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday, March 27th. It was a dark, foggy night, dank and cold. Julie called Patty's apartment, said she was at a downtown bar, and asked if she could come over to watch television that evening, but she never showed up. The general theory, agreed upon by Julie's friends, parents, and the police, is that something happened to her as she hitchhiked the eight blocks to Patty's apartment. She was a free spirit, said Renee. She wouldn't have teased or come on to a guy who picked her up hitchhiking, but she could easily have said something that would have made him angry. The group has been in contact with a number of psychics. Their versions of what may have happened are widely varied, but the friends have found enough consistency to believe she is now buried in a shallow grave in a rural area northeast of Madison. Julie Spearschneider's body, then a skeleton, was found in 1981 in the town of Dunn, near the Yahara River. Just about a year after that, Susan LeMayhew, 24, her body is found in the UW Arboretum. She had been missing for four months. Four dead and police waiting for a break. This is now the newspapers are connecting the murders. Wisconsin State Journal, 2nd of May, 1981. The mildly retarded, physically handicapped woman was described as a, quote, street person, unquote, who had also hung out in the King and Main Street areas in along State and Williamson Streets. She had been reported missing from her room at Allen Hall, December 15, 1979. We had a couple of suspects, remembers UW Police and Security Lieutenant Gary Moore, but both were cleared. We came up with absolutely nothing. However, go back to the Capital Times in September 6, 1979. This is three months before her disappearance. Susan LeMayhew makes the newspaper. Man charged in threat. Percy Lee Love, 40, who was charged last April with battering a Madison woman, was charged in criminal court today with threatening to kill her if she testified against him. According to the complaint filed against Love today, he stopped Susan LeMayhew in the tavern parking lot August 24th and told her he would kill her or have someone else do it if she persisted in testifying in the battery case. The charge of threatening to injure a witness carries a maximum penalty of five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. The earlier battery charge stems from an incident last April 12th in which he allegedly beat up LeMay. So here's somebody who is a, well, street person, as they said. She's living in a place called Allen Hall, which is a place for people with mental challenges. And... Uh, she disappears in December 1979 when she doesn't come back. Her body is, you know, later found in May. But Percy Love, three months before she disappeared, goes to court for threatening to kill her. He said, I will kill you or have somebody else do it. Three months later, she winds up dead. Percy Love is not <laughs> prosecuted for the murder. No one is. Well, so she never made the witness stand. And she, well, she's not the kind of person that when people die, other people care about too much. Unfortunately. But you can see that they're starting to make that connection in 1981. Yeah, they're seeing the bodies stack up. Four dead and police waiting for a break. So the four women, the Julies and Deborah Ann Hall, are, you know, are murdered one, one every year, and nobody can do anything about it. This continues. Shirley Stewart. This is from Wisconsin State Journal, July 2nd, 2012. So this is a look back. 
unsolved murders haunt campus. Shirley Stewart, 17, disappeared in January 1980 after leaving the Dean Clinic and was found in July 1981 in a forest north of Madison. Detectives suspected that the same predator killed the five women. Shirley Stewart is the next person in the Capital City killing. Coming on to almost a year later, Donna Mraz, 19. She stabbed to death near Camp Randall Stadium in 1982 while on her way home from a waitress job at a State Street restaurant. Here's the Wisconsin State Journal article. Few leads in murder, July 3rd, 1982. Investigators have asked a 22-year-old University of Wisconsin-Madison student from Milwaukee to undergo hypnosis in hopes that he may remember more about the fatal stabbing early Friday of a woman on a concrete walkway north of Camp Randall, Donna Mraz, 23, of Van Huys Avenue, who stabbed about midnight died of multiple stab wounds two hours later at the University Hospital. Dane County Deputy Coroner Don Scullin said Miss Moraz received a stab wound to the heart. He said other results of an autopsy conducted Friday were not available. Now, according to his roommates, the UW student walked to his apartment window and saw Miss Moraz fall. He ran outside and saw that she'd been stabbed. A deep wound in her left arm stretched from shoulder to elbow and penetrated nearly to the bone, and the student also saw dampness caused by blood in their chest. The student ran back inside and called for an ambulance. He and another man returned to the woman and put a blanket around her. He heard her gagging and tried to resuscitate her. Moore said Friday afternoon that investigators had absolutely nothing about a suspect. We had somebody that saw a shadow around the stadium, but absolutely no description, he said. The use of hypnosis in criminal cases is controversial throughout the country and is the major issue in a first-degree murder appeal pending before the Wisconsin Supreme Court. In that case, Ralph Armstrong is seeking reversal of his conviction because a key witness was hypnotized before identifying him in a police lineup. Critics contend hypnosis can irrevocably taint the memory of a witness who may be unable to distinguish later between actual memory and the recollections created during hypnosis. Donna Mraz's murder killed right in front of Camp Randall Stadium. Somebody hears it, comes out, sees a shadow, doesn't see anything. Madison police have nothing. So that we're gonna hypnotize, we're gonna hypnotize him. It just seems like almost out of like a '70s sitcom. Right. Here's what'll help you. We're gonna hypnotize yeah. you so you can see the killer. If we think that's ineffectual, and I hate to say this because I, I have a lot of respect for what the difficult job the police officers have, but it's made even more difficult because things are out of control in this month in 1982. This is the same newspaper as this hypnosis article about Donna Mraz. Two more attacks mark outbreak of assaults. They have a list of these going through June. June 26th, a 28-year-old Sun Prairie woman was raped in her car in a parking lot at Francis and Lake Streets by a man wearing a dark ski mask pulled down over his nose. The assailant held a knife to her throat during the assault. June 25th, a 28-year-old Eastside woman escaped an assailant who grabbed her from the bushes in James Madison Park by kicking him in the groin. June 24th, a 19-year-old woman was cut on the leg and her jaw was chipped by a man who attacked and slashed her at Demetro Field near Packers Avenue. June 21st, a 28-year-old teacher was sexually assaulted as she walked along railroad tracks near the 2900 block of St. Paul Avenue on the east side. June 17th, a 79-year-old woman was sexually assaulted and robbed by a man who crawled into her east side home through a small window. June 11th, a 22-year-old woman was sexually assaulted in a Williamson Street apartment by a man who threatened to kill her because of her connection with a motorcycle club. June 8th, a 27-year-old woman was grabbed by a man and raped in the city's near east side. June 6th, an 18-year-old gasoline station clerk was grabbed and sexually assaulted as she was closing the station. This is June of 1982. Yeah. This is crime run amok. Chaos. I mean, it's really, it's terrifying what was going on in June of 1982. Donna Mraz is murdered. Everybody else was attacked, assaulted stabbed 
people were fighting off attackers. And then Donna Mraz just was the unlucky one. And none of these are solved. A couple years later, we come to the, the last of the people think of the Capital City killings. Janet Rash, 20. Her body was found partially burnt in 1985 near a highway 100 miles north of Madison after being reported missing for over a month. This is from the Stevens Point Journal, 12th of January, 1985. An unhealed wound. The Portage County Sheriff's Department has had little to say about the death except that it's being treated as a murder and that investigation continues. The reason for that is simple. Investigators don't have any solid evidence. They've expended hundreds of frustrating hours in the case, but their hopes now hinge on a detailed autopsy report from the state crime laboratory. Even that report may fall short, and we are faced with the unsettling prospect of living with the festering wound of Janet Rash's unsolved death. The theory is that this young woman died by strangulation, but it remains a theory because her body was so terribly decomposed by the time it was found. Her body was partially clad when found, and authorities believe that she was sexually assaulted. But again, the lack of solid clues makes that only speculation. Highway 54 will take you a lot of places, but it isn't a major state commuter route loaded with transient travelers so there's a good chance that Janet Rash's killer or killers is still among us. However, October of 2022, Portage County Sheriff's Department finally closes the case. Not with a murder, though, but they've decided it was accidental. Hmm. The story was she was camping while she was hitchhiking, and in the night, her sleeping bag caught fire. She ran to the highway for help, but she died from her wounds before she could find any assistance. So she was partially clothed because... The fire had burned some of the clothes off her body. Mm. She died away from the campsite. So that's why they took so long to find her. And by the time they found her decomposed remains, they couldn't figure out what happened to her. But she was hitchhiking somewhere, probably couldn't catch a ride, decided to camp. Sleeping bag, caught fire. Had a bad luck, you know, set a fire, got too close to the fire or or a spark came flying off it in the night. She's sleeping. Mm -hmm. She wakes up and her body's on fire. So that case is eventually... So we can cross that one off the list. That's where I'm from, right around there. So I was wondering like, if there was a connection, but so you're, clearly that was... You're finally not a suspect left. anymore, Chad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I was a baby then, so it had been tough for me. That's a good alibi. But that story to me, though, is just such a... It's good that's closure for the family. Because, I mean, they're writing about Janet Rasher's story in the Stevens Point Journal for mm-hmm. a couple of decades. And it's really a, a tragedy. And this is... Portage County is not a place where a lot of murders happen. No. So to have a violent but they think sexual assault and murder, which isn't weird to think because this is happening in the early 80s. This kind of crime is it's happening yeah. all the time. In defense of the fine people of Stevens Point growing up in Wisconsin Rapids, Madison is the big city to my parents to this day. They think, oh, Madison's such a big city. <laughs> right. you know, growing up in a, a town of 20,000. Yeah, sure. It might be, but compared to the likes of nearby Milwaukee or Chicago, it still has kind of that small town feel to it. I'm glad they were able to put some closure to it. And it, yeah. this, she had a scary end, obviously on fire, but it wasn't somebody wasn't brutalizing her. She didn't have to deal with human cruelty at the end of her life. And that seems like at least a, a small blessing if you can say if there is one blessing in that terrible yeah. story. Those are the classic kind of capital city killings. Let's talk about a couple of killings that happened afterwards 20 years afterwards in the 2000s that kind of changed a lot of things in Madison. The first one was Brittany Zimmerman in April of 2008. Mm -hmm. And I remember this one because 
She was stabbed to death in her West Doty Street apartment, April 2nd, 2008. Yeah, that's right downtown. Yeah, right by the bus station. She had called 911 and was on the phone with the operator while the guy was attacking, while he was breaking in. Mm-hmm. Became disconnected, and the operator didn't call back. So it changed how 911 works in Madison. <laughs> so the call so, was yeah. dropped. No one ever called her back. It's a sad, stabbing death unsolved for a long time billboards all over madison for a decade saying if you have any information you know her family on the news they got rid of the bus station downtown because they thought that the killer was a transient they thought got a bus station come and go i'd taken that bus to lacrosse i'd taken that bus to minneapolis i'd gone to that bus a million times and now we don't have a bus station in madison 15 years later there is no bus station in madison and they thought he got off and then got back on and how are you ever going to find that guy yeah eventually Someone, a guy was already in jail, David Rawl, pled guilty after 14 years at the end of 2022. And what was he in for, do we know? He was already in for a violent crime. Yeah. But then they were able to link him to being in Madison, and he admitted to like somebody else, and then they got him for it. And now, I don't know if he's sentenced yet. This just happened at the end of 2022 that he pled guilty. Okay. When we're recording in March here, 2023, I do not believe he has been sentenced to the rest of his life. I assume he's not going anywhere. He's not going to be able to kill anybody else. But that was another thing. So Janet Rash, solved in 2022. Brittany Zimmerman, solved in 2022. Kelly Nolan, UW-Whitewater student living in downtown Madison who disappeared after a night out drinking and her murdered body left in Oregon, Wisconsin. This Capital Times, May 11th, 2008. Questions abound, but cops say little. The first question when Kelly Nolan didn't come home June 23rd was simple. What happened to her? The answer two weeks later was heartbreaking, but remains incomplete. Nolan's body was found July 9th in a wooded area in the town of Dunn, 10 miles south of downtown Madison. Ten months later, police still don't know who put her there, while a cause of death and motive for the crime have never been released by authorities. That was the second body found in Dunn. Yeah, that seems to be a popular <laughs> dump spot. Apparently. People in the town of Dunn, may I recommend some closed-circuit TV cameras or something so we can find these guys. Since the death of Nolan, a 22-year-old UW-Whitewater student who disappeared after partying on State Street, Madison residents have seen two more tragic killings of young people in which the questions far outnumber the answers. Police have not identified any suspects or motive in these crimes. The January 28th fatal daytime stabbing of 31-year-old Joel Marino in his home and the killing of Brittany Zimmerman, who we just talked about, the 21-year-old UW-Madison student April 2nd, raising possible concerns about whether police are holding back too much information about their cases and about the progress in solving them. When killers run the loose... Law enforcement has a responsibility to maximize the information that it gives out to the public, said Jack Levin, a professor of criminology at Northeastern University in Boston and author of books on homicide who has consulted for police, prosecutors, and defense attorneys in murder trials. Otherwise, the public can't take precautions, Levin added. And if police investigators would simply take a look at cases of murder that have been solved thanks to the involvement of members of the public, they might think twice before they conceal evidence. Madison Police Chief Noble Ray said detectives are holding back only what they must to make sure the cases can be solved, with some key details known only to investigators to help them weed out false confessors and trip up the guilty. He also said investigators were working very hard on the cases, which are more difficult to solve because they are all believed to be random attacks by strangers with no ties to the victims. And he stressed that more was going on behind the scenes than people realize. But Kelly Nolan's still unsolved. Yeah. No one knows who killed her. Their investigation... How did the police search? What did they do? They did think these crimes were connected. They were looking. January 4th, 1982. Detectives have wish list two. So this is kind of a New Year's story in the Wisconsin State Journal in 1982 before Donna Mraz died. 
Like everyone else, Madison area detectives have their own holiday wish list. On the list of sticky cases they would like to see resolved during the new year are crimes ranging from homicides to armed robberies to thefts. And at the top of the list are the unsolved murders of seven women. That's the capital city killings they're talking about in January 4th, 1982. So 41 years ago, it makes the New Year's newspaper. If they think it's a serial killer. When you think about a serial killer, Jeff, like, and we've talked about lots of serial killers on this show. <laughs> it seems to be a popular. That unfortunately, Wisconsin, we have a bunch. But when you think about a serial killer, what comes to mind? If we asked AI art to yeah. do a picture of a serial killer, what do you think it would show us? A... Late 20s, early 30s, man, usually white, a sullen look. Like a Dahmer type. Yeah, like a Dahmer type. A loner, isolated, somebody who's uncomfortable around other people. Somebody, when they talked about Ed Gein, they're like, well, Ed was always a little bit off. Yeah. That's what we think. And and Ed's actually not in the pantheon of serial killers. He was more of a grave robber who uh, a couple older ladies pissed him off, so they met their end, Mr. Gein. Right. But we picture those weird... Yeah, like, the reclusive from the um, outcasts, the leather face, or or even in real life, the Hillside Strangler, or the Boston Strangler, or Richard Ramirez. Like kind a of, psycho. Right. Yeah. Right. Richard Ramirez, got, uh, he's got the pentagram on his hand. Yeah. The son of Sam is a loner, kind Deranged. of not a lot of friends. Yeah. Well, the FBI on their website, they have a myths about serial killers section. Let's debunk all these myths about serial killers with with the FBI. Myth, serial killers are all dysfunctional loners. No, Mike, that's just you. The (laughs) the majority of serial killers are not reclusive, social misfits who live alone. They are not monsters and may not appear strange. Many serial killers hide in plain sight within their community. Serial murderers often have families and homes, are gainfully employed, and appear to be normal members of the community. That's like the torso killer in New York City who was killing people. He had a job and friends. Because many serial murderers can blend in so effortlessly, they are oftentimes overlooked by law enforcement and the public. Myth. Serial killers are all white males. Contrary to popular belief, serial killers span all racial groups. They are white, African-American, Hispanic, and Asian serial killers. The racial diversification of serial killers generally mirrors that of the overall U.S. population. Diversity is our strength. I was going to say that. I guess that's where we have equity is in serial killers. Well, remember those guys in... Washington, D.C., the snipers. Yeah, they were... Black guys. It was uh, an older guy, and he kind of had Sven gollied this younger, younger guy, guy to come along with him and sniping people. Mm-hmm. Terrifying, random, murderous attacks. Long range, unsuspecting. You could be anywhere and just killed out of mm-hmm. nowhere. So that's not the white male loner kind of deal. Myth. Serial killers are only motivated by sex. If we think there's going to be an assault involved or they get their jollies, guys like Dahmer did, but not all of them. All serial murders are not sexually based. There are many other motivations for serial murders, including anger, thrill, financial gain, and attention seeking. Financial gain is something that people don't talk about enough. Yeah. I guess with the Murdoch murders, yeah, where he killed his nanny or his kid's nanny. Right. To cash in on her to get him out of a tough spot. Well, the life insurance policy. The life insurance that's policy, yeah. H.H. Holmes. He'd hire people, take out insurance policies on them, then murder them and collect the insurance. Serial killing for financial gain. Myth. All serial murderers travel and operate interstate. Most serial killers have very defined geographic areas of operation. They conduct their killings within comfort zones that are often defined by an anchor point. 
residence, employment, residence of a relative, Jeffrey Dahmer's grandmother's house. Mm-hmm. Serial murderers will, at times, spiral their activities outside of their comfort zone when their confidence has grown through experience to avoid detection. Very few serial murderers travel interstate to kill. Myth. Serial killers cannot stop killing. It has been widely believed that once serial killers start killing, they cannot stop. There are, however, some serial killers who stop murdering altogether before being caught. In those instances, there are events or circumstances in offenders' lives that inhibit them from pursuing more victims. These can include increased participation in family activities, sexual substitution, or other diversion. Think about the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. He has all those horrible crimes and then stops. When he realizes that DNA evidence can be a thing, he stops. And they find him 25 years later. Undiscarded DNA of all things. Right. But not like his compulsion made him do it. And I think that trope might come from where Dahmer, one of the most famous serial killers, also Wisconsin, spiraled out of control towards the end of his killing spree because he could not, he could not stop the compulsion to kill. Right. He went from every once in a while to then those last couple of months. He's Mm -hmm. just going after people constantly. Yeah. Myth. All serial killers are insane or are evil geniuses. Another myth that exists is that serial killers have either a debilitating mental condition, psychotic, like, I mean, Richard Ramirez, Mm -hmm. or they're extremely clever and intelligent, like the Zodiac. Yeah. As a group, serial killers suffer from a variety of personality disorders, including psychopathy, antisocial personality disorder, and others. Most, however, are not adjudicated as insane under the law. So they're not psychotic. They're not having a break from reality. The media has created a number of fictional serial killer geniuses, Anthony Hopkins, yes. Hannibal Lecter, who outsmart law enforcement at every turn. Like other populations, however, serial killers range in intelligence from borderline to above average levels. Myth. Serial killers want to get caught. Offenders committing a crime for the first time are inexperienced. They gain experience and confidence with each new offense, eventually succeeding with few mistakes or problems. While most serial killers plan their offenses more thoroughly than other criminals, the learning curve is still very steep. They must select, target, approach, control, and dispose of their victims. The logistics involved in committing a murder and disposing of the body can become very complex, especially when there are multiple sites involved. As serial killers continue to offend without being captured, they can become empowered, feeling they will never be identified. As the series continues, the killers may begin to take shortcuts when committing their crimes, and this often causes them to take more chances, leading to identification by law enforcement. It is not that serial killers want to get caught. They feel like they can't get caught. Yeah, perfect example, at least in a fictional sense, is Dexter. He continued his spree and used his methods of disposal, but ended up getting kind of sloppy towards the end. Right. Desperate, sloppy, cocky. But this idea that that they're tortured, this goes back to if they are insane. You're not going to find that in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychological Association. Insane is a legal term, whether you are of sound enough mind to have committed the crime or not. Like mm-hmm. whether you know the difference between right and wrong. You know, it's why Ed Gein went to a mental hospital and didn't go into prison. Mm-hmm. Because they said he didn't know the difference between right and wrong. While Dahmer went to prison because he knew what he was doing. He didn't want to get He knew caught. what he was doing was wrong and he had to pay for that. Right. He was drinking to numb his feelings of knowing what he was doing was wrong. Hmm. But when you talk about, was it a serial killer? Did Madison police think they were dealing with that? 
Well, yes. By the mid-80s, after Donna Mraz's murder, they thought that these women were victims of one of the most infamous serial killers of the 1980s, Henry Lee Lucas. And they Netflix made a great documentary about him called The Confession Killer because he confessed to hundreds of murders. He's the inspiration behind the movie Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Michael Rooker is terrified. When I think about that movie, which I, I saw in my teens. I haven't seen it. It's based on Henry and his partner, Otis Toole, going around. And it, it's just probably the closest thing to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer that's come out lately is the Dahmer miniseries. Yeah. They kind of go into those uncomfortable performances and create those moods. And Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer really does that well. And Michael Rooker is so disturbing in that film. Like when I see him with pictures of fans and he's everything, oh, Michael Rooker, he's a great guy. I'm like, no, he's not. He is evil. And I know he's great, good human being, all those kind of things. But that performance is scarring. But Henry Lee Lucas, once he starts confessing to different kinds of murders around the country, he starts telling this to these Texas policemen. The policemen are like, okay, let's go and see if we can solve these other murders that happen around the country. And then every police department of unsolved cases that may have been in the area where Henry Lee Lucas could have been in at some time, or him and Otis as they were traveling. They thought, well, let's see if he can know some things about the crime, and let's see if we can pin him on Henry Lee Lucas, and he'll admit to it. Wisconsin State Journal, January 27, 1984. Killer to be queried in Texas on state deaths. Julie, Sue, Deborah, Barbara, Julie, Donna, and Christine. Each was found murdered, most abducted, all of their cases remain unsolved. Local detectives may get a crack solving some of these tough Dane cases on March 13th when they are scheduled to question mass killer Henry Lee Lucas in Texas. County and city detectives are in the long line of investigators from across the nation who want to question Lucas in hopes of finding solutions to their baffling murder cases. Authorities believe Lucas, 47, and Elwood Toole, 36, who faces arson murder charges in Jacksonville, Florida, may have committed as many as 200 murders. Lucas has told police he is responsible for killing as many as 165 women in treks across the country, sometimes with Toole. Lucas and Toole have been placed in the Dane County area in 1971, 1976, and August of 1982. They have also been linked to the slaying of a Menominee Falls woman, Joyce Garter, 54, in May of 1981. Dane County Sheriff Jerome Black said arrangements have been made with Texas Rangers to question Lucas on March 13th about some of the Madison area cases. It definitely appears he was in the vicinity of at least one, if not more, of the homicide cases we're working on with female victims, Lack said. It would be irresponsible not to interview him and try to refresh his memory. Let's fast forward five months. Capital Times, June 16, 1984. Evidence strong Lucas killed four women here by Marv Belusek. He's written a number of these. Yeah, we have a book right here on the counter. <laughs> 101 Wisconsin Unsolved Mysteries by Marv Belusek. So, yep, so he's been on the beat for murder in Wisconsin and a long of, uh, time. Detectives hope to interview Otis Elwood Toole, a sidekick of mass killer Henry Lee Lucas, to try to link the pair to unsolved Dane County murders of as many as five women. Sheriff Jerome Lackey said Friday investigators are convinced that Lucas abducted and murdered Julianne Hall, 18, whose body was found June 21, 1978, in a remote wooded area along Woodland Road near Highway 12 west of Wanakee. She had been missing five days. The basis for this determination is that Mr. Lucas provided the investigators with significant details involving the crime scene and victim that only the perpetrator, in our judgment, could have known, he said. 
Lucas, who has admitted more than 350 murders nationwide, was interviewed for nine hours earlier this week at Georgetown, Texas, where he's imprisoned by Dane County Detective Dave Kokums, Madison Police Detective Mary Otterson, and University Police Detective Herb Hansen. The videotaped interviews were analyzed Thursday by investigators. Lackey said there's strong evidence to indicate that Lucas is involved with the deaths of Susan LeMayhew, Julie Spearschneider, and Deborah Bennett, and, quote, some evidence, unquote, that he also killed Shirley Stewart. Lucas, along with his lover and companion Otis Toole, 36, have told of roaming the country, killing along the way. Toole, who is now serving time in Florida for murder, is believed to have been traveling with Lucas at the time of the Hall murder. Authorities say they will now begin making arrangements to travel to Florida to interview Toole. It is not known for certain what brought Lucas and Toole to Wisconsin, but according to Sheriff's Lieutenant George Miller, Lucas is believed to have traveled through Madison while on his way to visit relatives in another state. This is 1984, where he's admitting to all of these murders. And, and he's probably having a fun time with it. He was getting cigarettes. Mm-hmm. He's getting Kentucky Fried Chicken. He's getting Coca-Cola. Getting attention. He's getting constant attention for months. You see that in the documentary, The Confession Killer. It just state after state, people come in and they try to solve these murders using Henry Lee Lucas. And he is their huckleberry. Mm-hmm. 300, he's 47 years old. 350 murders. That's, I mean. That's a pretty high body count. Remember when Will Chamberlain said he had sex in his autobiography? He's <laughs> like he had sex with 20,000 women. Yeah. Somebody did the math and it was like he would have had that like four times a day or whatever, like every league yeah. game. And it was just like some kind of number that was astronomical. Henry Lee Lewis would have to kill somebody like once a week. In the so he's end, less than credible. Yes. He eventually recants most of his confession, which is why the Henry Lee Lucas connection to the Capital City killings starts drying up in the newspapers by the yeah. ladies. It's not mentioned anymore. By the time we get to 1990, the Wisconsin State Journal once again is doing their New Year's crime roundup. A brief glimmer of hope for clearing these cases came in 1984 when mass killer Henry Lee Lucas confessed to killing Hall and Spearschneider. But Lucas later recanted his confessions to more than 600 murders. Wow. Claiming he was trying to avoid the death penalty. All right, so it's not Henry Lee Lucas. What's another kind of, of killer? They're the kind of killers that the quote from the beginning of the show was by this guy named Michael Arntfield, who wrote this Mad City book. And his theory is that certain people come to cities at certain times because they think of it as a hunting ground. It's like devil in a white city. Right. They take advantage of the opportunity that a city in chaos can provide. Place-specific. Again, from the Mad City book. Before the clinical and forensic literature on psychopaths, which was later to come and ultimately verify what the annals of crime had already shown, a more anecdotal history confirmed that perceptively safe cities, caught up in great migrations and celebrations, tend to simultaneously invite in and ignore homicidal threats at a rate rarely seen in more perceptively perilous locales. Consider, by way of comparison, the World's Fair of 1893, in Christine Rothschild's hometown of Chicago. It was ostensibly a celebration of the 400th anniversary of Columbus discovering America. It also ended up being what likely remains the single greatest protected bloodbath on American soil at the hands of an American citizen, the devil in the white city. Perceptively safe cities caught up in great migrations and celebrations tend to simultaneously invite in and ignore homicidal threats at a rate rarely seen in more perceptively perilous locales. New York, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee. That's perceptively perilous locale. What's a perceptively safe city? Madison. Madison. 
today, if I had to walk home, it's night right now, if I had to walk home the three quarters of a mile of my house, I'd be like, okay, I wouldn't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Even going back a hundred years, Madison hasn't always necessarily been as safe as we kind of dream it to be as Money Magazine's number one place to live. The 1920s, during the time of Prohibition, a specific corner in Madison's downtown was called Madison's Death Corner. And you won't find it on any map, in our time anyway, but the intersection of Murray Street and Desmond Court was once called Madison's Death Corner. Between the years 1912 and 1928, it was the site of six murders. The intersection is now occupied by the Medical Complex 1 South Park and was once part of Madison's Greenbush neighborhood, also known as Little Italy. The neighborhood centered around Regent Street, which is known for tailgating on a Saturday or many of Madison's medical complexes, but it once held low-income housing and was considered the slum of Madison. The National Prohibition Act of 1919 only exacerbated the problems, turning the neighborhood into the epicenter of bootlegging activity. Death Corner's deceased include Madison's first law enforcement officer to die in the line of duty, Herbert Dredger, along with Dredger, Greenbush's queen of bootlegging, Jenny Justo, their father, Carl Justo, were killed in the area. Vestiges of days gone by held on in name only, Greenbush Bar and Greenbush Bakery. The little Italian store for bonies has since closed and moved to nearby Monona. So that section of the city is only kind of held together by Greenbush Bar. Greenbush Bakery has since moved down Regent Street, but that's the last little part of what was once Little Italy. Yeah, but the Italian Workmen's Club is the, right there. The Italian, that's right, that, well, that's right by Greenbush Bar, yeah. right above it. I partied if, so hard there, I barfed one time. If you are looking for the best pizza in Madison, fight me. It is at Greenbush Bar. <laughs> it's a little dive bar with the best pizza. At the time in the 1920s, too, Madison had the most murders per capita wow. of any city in the United States. Little old Madison. This perceptively safe city. So when you talk about death corners, its nickname, and murders per capita, Madison was a rough place 100 mm-hmm. years ago. And so what we think of, like, oh, safe, small, no problems. Yeah. Plenty of gangland killings at Death Corners. We'll blame it on Chicago. Right. We always do. Yeah, we... That's the classic Wisconsin way. Well, we wouldn't have any problems if we're for all those fibs coming up. That's right. There's already kind of a reputation in Madison. There's also a famous unsolved killing from even earlier than that, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So on the evening of September 5th, 1911, Magdalene Lemberger put her four children to bed. All was quiet in their green bush, Madison home. Again, we got green bush. The next morning, the Lembergers awoke to find their seven-year-old daughter. Annie was missing. Citizens in dozens searched buildings, dumpsters, boxcars, and even storm sewers for any sign of Annie. Four days later, a cement worker found Annie's naked body floating in Brittingham Bay. The prime suspect was John Dogskin Johnson. That's an all-time name right there. Oh, man. He was a serial child molester who lived only a block from Annie. Dogskin Johnson was brought into custody, but he denied any involvement. Johnson eventually confessed while an angry mob formed outside of the jail. Johnson was sentenced and sent to Wapon. Upon arrival, Johnson lobbied that the confession was coerced and that he feared for his life if he was released to the mob. He took the confession so he could be commuted to Wapon for his safety. But then when he arrived there, he's like, no, that's not true. I'm just afraid for my life because of the angry mob. But a decade later, a judge would agree to Johnson's appeal, 
his attorney was able to enter a new piece of evidence, a key witness. A friend of Lemberger's, May Sorensen, testified that Annie's father, Martin Lemberger, struck her in a fit of rage. This piece of evidence was divulged to her by the Lemberger's son, Elios. Johnson's conviction was overturned, and Lemberger was arrested for manslaughter. But the statute of limitations had run out. So Martin Lemberger... Before there's a statute of limitations on murder. Isn't that crazy? So Martin Lemberger was never tried for the death of his daughter. In 1933, a new piece of technology was debuted, and Lemberger's Johnson and Mrs. Sorensen agreed to submit to a polygraph. So Sorensen failed, and she admitted that she was offered $500 to introduce the testimony. To this day, it's unclear who abducted and killed Annie Lemberger. Was it Dogskin Johnson? Was it her father? Or was there another culprit in this one slum of Greenbush? It's a tragedy, too, because all these unsolved murders of random innocent girls, mm-hmm. no one's been brought to justice. Yeah. Dogskin Johnson, he gets away. Dad gets People keep on getting away with murder. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to 1968 and Christine Rothschild murder, Madison is a, is a pretty wild place at the end of the 60s. Mm-hmm. This is from 1968, A Wild Time in Madison by uh, Stu Levitan. This is in the Isthmus, August 24, 2008. In 1968, Madison was in fiscal and political disarray. There was chaos and destruction on campus. A large segment of the industrial east side was on strike, and city workers waged sick leave job actions. The bus system teetered on the edge of failure. Crime spiked. Some Madison men died in Vietnam, while others, along with some Madison women, waged their war at home. Now, that's the famous documentary called The War at Home. The War at Home talks about Berkeley campus and the protests against the war, and then Madison is featured, the protests against the war. That's Paul Soglin's first time on film. You mean UW-Madison Berkeley East campus? (laughs) Right. And Paul Soglin, who eventually be mayor of Madison for like 25 years total in three different decades, he's a student activist. And so he's featured in this War at Home film about these demonstrations that were happening against the Vietnam War which would get more and more intense eventually to where we talked about Sterling Hall, Christine Rothschild's body was found in front of, was bombed because there was an office inside of Sterling Hall where they said they were doing some kind of military research. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even you know like that, but the protesters thought that they'd get back at them. So I'm saying, so the protests were so intense, people were setting off, were blowing things up. And the Red Gym... You know, there also was a bomb there hmm. before the bomb at Sterling Hall. That one didn't go as successfully, whereas it didn't really blow anything up. But they also tried to bomb the Red Gym, the armory. Their war at home. It really was a war at home in the streets of Madison in 1968. Michael Artfield is a Canadian criminologist. He decides in 2016 to start working on this book, Mad City, about the campus city killing. And it's because... At his university he was working at in Canada, he had, as a class, was taking on these criminology students, and they were starting to look at cold cases hmm. and starting to follow up on them. He thought it was interesting that no one had really been talking about these ones in Madison, and the students were really interested in them because it was kids their age who'd been murdered, and that's why they kind of wanted to follow up on it. So that's why eventually he write this Mad City book, but then he does write an, an article talking about UW-Madison during the Vietnam era. This is from Madison.com, March 14th, 2018, and this is originally printed on a website called The Conversation. At least three serial killers stalked UW-Madison during its Vietnam protest era, says criminologist Michael Arntfield. 
gateway crimes from peeping and prowling to stalking lecture halls and dorm rooms all went unrecognized and were allowed to escalate amid a larger culture war where the campus police and even the encompassing Madison City police were effectively told to stand down and disengage. Again, a familiar refrain today. Over the years, some murder cases remain unsolved, but they are not forgotten. In criminology, we refer to episodes such as the 14-year UW phenomenon from 1968 to 1982 as a place-specific crime. It's a concept, still only in its adolescence, that finally recognizes that violent offenders are more strategic and logistically oriented than previously thought. The concept describes how they proactively and discriminately select cities and even places within those cities such as polarized college campuses to carry out and just as quickly bury their crimes within a bigger haystack of mayhem, angst, and misguided aggression. It explains how and why specific physical environments not only impart some ritual or symbolic significance for the killers, but also how they exploit police apathy and public disenfranchisement in those same select locales. It's how and why, as we've confirmed at the Murder Accountability Project, Nearly 15% of all unsolved stranglings committed in the United States between 2003 and 2015 have occurred in the same 12-mile stretch in Chicago. When I wrote Mad City as a visiting scholar at Vanderbilt University in the winter of 2016, it was an otherwise untold story of how divisive campus politics and university administrators, addled by gelatinous vertebrae, enabled the murders of students, staff, and local Madison residents by psychopaths hiding in plain sight. And he thinks... He solved the murder of Christine Rostrov. This is from an article in the Daily Mirror about Mike Arnfield. Mike Arnfield has written book Mad City, which looks at the murder of Christine as well as series of killings in the city. It also explains the lifelong quest by Christine's best friend, Linda Tomaszewski, to bring her killer to justice. Christine's killer's M.O. was going to universities and blending in as a medical researcher. He never finished his research and kept on going to different universities. The murder has an alarming similarity to one which occurred at his alma mater a year prior to this, and we know he was there. When Christine was a student at the UW, she became aware that someone was stalking her, laying in wait outside her window and making mysterious phone calls. Niels Bjorn Jorgensen would often be in the memorial reading room where Christine would be there. She apparently told Linda, her best friend, that she felt he was stalking her and she was doing all she could to avoid encountering him, such as not going out and locking her doors and windows. Linda told police what she knew, and despite investigations, almost 50 years after Christine's murder, no one's been arrested. Niels, who she has long believed was Christine's killer, now is dead. Mike Arnfield adds, One of the most distressing anecdotes is that Christine realized she was being stalked. There was evidence that he had been in her room. There was a break-in where nothing was stolen. And when she reported this, the advice was to get a whistle, so that if he does attack, she can call for help. She was dead within a week. Oh, man. He was named by Christine on the final day of her life as her stalker. There were no drag marks where her body was found, suggesting she had gone there willingly. This guy later, that same day, pulled a gun at his work. She could easily have been coerced to that spot with a gun. He then leaves town within 72 hours, abandoning all his possessions, and later refuses to take a polygraph. Mike Arnfield claims Niels would have had access to a scalpel because of his role as a medical researcher. Obviously, remember, surgical tools were found Mm -hmm. near the site. And he said one of Neil's fellow researchers later made a statement that he'd seen him at the hospital cleaning a scalpel with a method that would remove all DNA and fingerprints. Linda, her best friend, dedicated her life to finding Christine's killer, and police did once listen to her and tried to track him down, but simply lacked the resources. We'll talk more about that in a second. Mm -hmm. Her murderer was also falsely linked, Mike believes, to a serial killer. After failing to get justice through police, Linda worked in the remaining years to alert anyone to Neil's whereabouts, particularly when he was close to universities. Without Linda, Mike believes, there would have been more murder at his hands. He added, she really was a saboteur. 
There would have been many more killings, and she really screwed up his plans. And he warns that without more focus on unsolved cases, we could all be heading for more problems. They talk about Niels Bjorn Jorgensen in the Capital Times in 1968. Ex-UW-surgeon sought for quiz in co-ed slang. Capital Times, September 17, 1968, by Irvin Keenan. Hunt in Detroit, New York. Dane County Sheriff's officers and Madison police have turned up what authorities call their hottest tip yet in the Christine Rothschild murder case, which occurred on the University of Wisconsin campus last May 26th. Sought for questioning as a former surgeon who was dismissed from university hospitals on July 1st. The search for the surgeon has turned to Detroit. Three officers from Madison were dispatched there Monday. Sheriff Franz Haas has disclosed this morning that he had been in touch with the trio this morning, but they had been unable to locate the physician. They reported they had learned possibly he left Detroit for New York City, and he advised the trio to continue the search to New York if necessary in order to question the man. Place specific? Well, this is September 1968. April of 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King is assassinated, and we already talked about that Madison had riots because of it. Then, obviously, compounded by the Vietnam protests, Detroit and New York had legendary riots after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. So if someone is looking for a place where they can cause trouble, hurt people, and the police are distracted, Detroit and New York City are right up the alley of place-specific killing. Yeah. By September 21st of 1968, Madison detectives gave up on Jorgensen. Detectives and quiz doctor in co-ed murder, Wisconsin State Journal. A former Madison Hospital employee questioned in New York Thursday by Madison investigators about the May 26th slaying of Christine Rothschild apparently has been, quote, checked out, unquote. The investigators are on their way home. University of Wisconsin Police Chief Ralph Hansen said that he heard nothing Friday from the three investigators. I can only assume that the man has been checked out and our men are on the way with no more leads to follow out there, he said. The 43-year-old man who had worked for about three months before July 1st at university hospitals was questioned because of reports that he had been in the Ann Emery dormitory area of Langdon Street, May 26th, about 4 a.m. the time Miss Rothschild was last seen alive. He was never a suspect linked to the crime, Chief Hansen said. Well, when Mike Arnfield checked on how that investigation went on Thursday, Jorgensen said that he wasn't feeling well and he'd come into the station on Friday to be questioned by the investigators. Then he never showed up. They went back to his apartment and he didn't answer the door when they went to follow up. Then they went home. Wow. Seems highly suspicious. <laughs> right. He doesn't show. He, he doesn't says show he doesn't up, feel well. Yeah. Won't do the questions. And then when and they went, he's like, oh, I'll come in tomorrow. Like, okay. He's a doctor, right? He's not just going to leave us. Yeah. He's gone. Checks out there. Linda hunts him down for years, tries to find out where she eventually moves to Dallas and Texas, finds out that he might be in Las Vegas. So then she goes to Las Vegas to find him. His mom dies. Eventually moves back to California and she's kind of tracking him down. She's sending him kind of postcards, keeping track, letting him know. That she that she's on to him. And then he eventually just gets too old and dies. Do they think that she thwarted all of his efforts? Well, that's what Michael Armfield yeah. feels. That because he knew he was being watched, mm -hmm. that he couldn't really get away with anything anymore. Wow. That's a crazy story. Yeah. You know, also, I mean, he's from like the California area, so Hollywood. His mother writes a book about a doctor that kidnaps a woman and kills her. Linda ends up reading the book because it's never really published. It's like only Vanity published later on. It almost looks like a confession that she knew her son, was a, who's a doctor. Yeah, seems like that. Is a murderer of women. Wow, that's a, if not, that's quite the coincidence. Right. <laughs> so the Mad City book, it's all written in that kind of hard-boiled style, like when I was reading the quotes from it. But it's a worthwhile read because 
it's interesting to think about these places that you've been that are written about in a true crime fashion. Yeah, just when you're talking about them, talking about Mauna Kea, I'm thinking I drive down that all the time. I, right. I had my family photos probably in the field where that lady was found, right and off of Woodland Drive. And it's, it's terrifying. And But Mad City's worth the read if you're from the area and, and interested in it because it, it really it's really about this woman's hunt for Dr. Jorgensen less than connecting these different crimes. Mike Ironfield did the legwork. Feels like they got the perp and then this lady's kind of crusade. To yeah. She had known Christine Rothschild for just a few months, mm-hmm. was her good friend, and she was one of the first people they called after her death, obviously, because would she have any clues? Yeah. And she just couldn't believe it because it wasn't just like a rant. It wasn't a car accident. It wasn't even a crime of passion. It was just a stalk, murder, leave the body. It was stabbed 14 times, gloves shoved in her mouth so she couldn't scream out, and she disconnected the Jorgensen. You said earlier in that news article, Arntfield thought that at least three killers were on loose during that era? Right, because it would have been, first of all, the Southeast Wisconsin killings. Correct. Were yep. going on. Chicago. And, then and you get into Christine Rothschild. Mm-hmm. You get Deborah Bennett. And then after that, you have Julie Spearschneider, Deborah Hall, Susan LeMayhew. Yeah. I mean, Susan LeMayhew might have been connected to the guy that threatened the killer, obviously. But then you have several murders in a row that could have been the same person over time. Because Jorgensen was already out by the middle of 1968. July 1st, he's done. Chased him off, yeah. So then you have several different active killers in this area. The police end their investigation into Jorgensen after he just doesn't show up. Well, okay, must not be guilty. Might as well come home. These guys, they couldn't have just stuck around in New York for a while, like have a piece of pizza, have a street dog, you know, do something, go to the Statue of Liberty, and then come back to the guy's house. That's not the first time that police kind of screwed up Capital City killings. Capital Times. Evidence lost in at least four Dane County cold cases. The Capital Times investigation into the handling of evidence in so-called cold case homicides was prompted by a tip from a former sheriff's office employee who alleged that evidence room staffers in the 1980s were ordered to destroy evidence in a variety of cases, including such major crimes as sex assaults, vehicular homicides, and murders. Inquiries by the Capital Times to the sheriff's office concerning evidence in the unsolved murder cases of four young women dating from 1976 to 1981 prompted an internal review within the agency. The probe revealed that the cases of Shirley Stewart, whose body was found in a wooded area in the town of Westport in 1980, a year after she went missing, Julie Spearschneider, who was missing for two years before her skeletal remains were discovered in the town of Dunn, nearly all evidence had been destroyed. And sheriff's officials had also found key evidence in another case. The 1968 murder of Christine Rothschild had simply been lost. Wondering why these things aren't solved. Well, they're not uh, paying attention to the evidence. The Capital Times initial source who requested anonymity out of concern that blowing the whistle might compromise their job says that sometime in the mid to late 80s, a supervisor in the evidence room ordered a major purge to relieve overcrowding in the facility. Of course, the sheriff in a recent interview denied that such a widespread purge occurred, but former evidence technician Lou Molnar, who retired in 1990, he says, oh yeah, it happened. Yeah. <laughs> so Sheriff Mahoney might even not been there at the time. Crime in the 1960s. Why was it so difficult? What was going on? We look at the uh, the average amount of Wisconsin murders in the 60s. 68.4 was the average amount per year in the whole state of Wisconsin. I mean, you think about gangland fights. You think about murders over money. And then you think if there's 68 murders happening in a year, and then in southeast Wisconsin, we have Christine Rothschild. We have those four women found near Milwaukee. 
ten percent of those murders are like serial killer murders in the nineteen sixties. Yeah, and crime starts going way high after that, and it continues for two decades. By the nineteen seventies, murders go up to one hundred twenty nine point five average per year. Nineteen eighties, one hundred forty six point five. And I remember growing up, you'd see on the Milwaukee news like every three days there'd be a murder. And we talked about that in the Dahmer episode that there was an epidemic of murders and violent crime in the late 80s, early 90s in Milwaukee. By the 90s, the average goes up to 212.8 murders per year. So from, did you say 68 was the first figure? Yeah, Yeah. it triples in 30 years. And then it starts going down again. By the zeros, it's 169.7. By the 2010s, it rises up a little bit, 179.5. Why was the jump? You know, what's the reason violent crime might have gone down. We were talking before today that if you had five or six women brutally murdered, left for dead, bodies found in a ditch, unsolved, within a few month period now, we would be, we'll have the pitchforks out or whatever gun sales are going. neighborhood watch and right. you know, don't leave your house after sundown and you know, right. be on every social media platform. Those are horror movie statistics. Definitely. And then homicides jumped up and then they start falling. In May of 2001, these researchers, John J. Donahue and Stephen Levitt, they're economists. They're not criminologists or anything like that. They've got a theory on why they think that crime has gone down so significantly from the 80s and 90s to the 2010s and after that. And this is from the Quarterly Journal of Economics, May of 2001. The impact of legalized abortion on crime, John J. Donahue and Stephen Levitt. Stephen Levitt became famous for the book called Freakonomics. Mm. A number of anecdotal empirical facts support the existence and magnitude of the crime-reducing impact of abortion. First, we see a broad consistency with the timing of legalization of abortion and the subsequent drop in crime. For example, the peak ages for violent crime are roughly 18 to 24, and crime starts turning down around 1992, roughly the time at which the first cohort born following Roe v. Wade would hit its criminal prime. Second, as we later demonstrate, The states that legalized abortion in 1970 saw drops in crime before the other 45 states in the District of Columbia, which did not allow abortions until the Supreme Court decision in 73. Our more formal analysis shows that higher rates in states of abortion in the 1970s and early 80s are strongly linked to lower crime over the period of 1985 to 1997. This finding is true after controlling for a variety of factors that influence, such as level of incarceration, number of police, and measures of states' economic well-being. The estimated magnitude of the impact of legalized abortion on crime is large. According to our estimates, states with high rates of abortion have experienced roughly a 30% drop in crime relative to the low abortion region since 1985. While one must be cautious in extrapolating our results out of a sample, the estimates suggest that legalized abortion can account for almost half the observed decline in crime in the United States between 1991 and 1997. That was one theory. Why was it so, like, it jumps and then it drops because the criminals didn't get a chance to be alive. The second, and this comes in the, in the mid-2000s, this is Jessica Reyes, and this is from the National Bureau on Economic Research in May 2007. The impact of childhood-led exposure on crime. Do you remember you were a kid and you could still buy unleaded and regular gasoline? I don't remember that, but I remember seeing the signs for unleaded and how it was so prominently. Right. So you have unleaded. Now you have like three different kinds of, you know. You have three different grades, but they're all unleaded. Right. Yeah. It seems like it would go without saying now 
that any gas pump you drive up to is going to be unleaded. Right, you can't so, buy regular gas. Exactly. When I was a kid in the early 80s, they still had unleaded and regular. And the idea is that lead exposure might have done it. So Jessica Reyes writes, There are substantial reasons to expect that a person's lead exposure as a child could affect the likelihood that he might commit a crime as an adult. Childhood lead exposure increases the likelihood of behavioral and cognitive traits such as impulsivity, aggressivity, and low IQ that are strongly associated with criminal behavior. Under the 1970 Clean Air Act, lead was almost entirely removed from gasoline between 1975 and 85. Children exposed to significant lead in the early 70s may have been more likely to grow up to be impulsive or aggressive adults who committed crimes in the late 80s and early 90s. On the other hand, children born in the 80s who experienced dramatically lower lead exposure after the phase-out of lead from gasoline may have been much less likely to commit crimes when they become adults in the late 90s and early 2000s. As each cohort approaches adulthood, the sharp declines in lead exposure that occurred between 1975 and 85 would be revealed in the behavior as adults. By the year 2020, all adults in their 20s and 30s will have grown up without any direct exposure to gasoline lead in childhood, and their crime rates should be correspondingly lower. She constructed a panel of state-year observations by linking crime rates in a state in a given year to childhood lead exposure in that state 20 or 30 years earlier. The link between lead and crime is thus identified off of the variation of lead exposure and crime over time within the state. Some states got rid of leaded gasoline earlier, and so she shows that the crime rate had dropped before states that had, much like in the states with abortion, the crime rate dropped lower and faster than the states who had taken more time with the lead gasoline. Lead exposure is measured both as lead in gasoline and lead in the air. And these lead exposure measures are tested against individual-level blood data on children's level exposure. Okay. The elasticity of violent crime with respect to childhood lead exposure is estimated to be 0.8. This implies that between 1992 and 2002, the phase-out of lead from gasoline was responsible for approximately a 56% decline in violent crime. That's significant. Right. So we have two studies looking at the statistics of crime and two huge things that happened in the U.S. in the 1970s. Number one, the legalization of abortion. Number two, the unleading of gasoline. Mm-hmm. And what they're using is that state data to show the difference, to show because, that there is a, a yeah, correlative trend. They're saying, well, here's one of the reasons that we think it's this. It's because states that changed earlier, crime dropped faster. Mm-hmm. We should assume today that crime should keep going down and down and down. We can only hope so, right? Right. That's so Except... Much. This is from Wisconsin Public Radio, Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. 2021 is the highest number of murders in Wisconsin on record. Wisconsin had 315 homicides in 2021. That's a 70% increase from 2019. University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee criminology professor Theodore Lentz said he's not surprised violence increased in 2020 and 2021. He said people feel like their needs aren't being met and they lack confidence in public safety, which are precursors to violence. We kind of had the perfect storm, Lentz said. We had the COVID-19 pandemic, and when you couple that with the massive amount of social unrest that we had, the protests and additional incidents with police shootings, that kind of just kept the spark thriving. Violent crime in the United States peaked in the 90s. Criminologists aren't exactly sure where the crime wave of the 1990s slowed, even though these economists (laughs) seem like they have an idea. But criminologists also don't know what will make this spike in homicides go down? Let's say. We talked about the big jump in the 70s to the 90s and then went down big. And now in the past couple of years, it's gone bigger than ever. Mm-hmm. If we're 
saying play-specific killings, once again, these moments of unrest might offer opportunities to predators. So what I hope is that police have learned the lessons in the past 50 years since the murder of Christine Rothschild that hopefully when these kind of things happen again, these guys won't get away with a bunch. Yeah, we can only hope so. Capital City killings, which I had not realized were linked to much more than just the murders around Madison. So if you guys would like to see some of these places that we talked about and the legends in person, you can find more at my Haunted History Tour Company, American Ghost Walks. And if you want to have a lot of fun on Instagram and Facebook and get news stories almost every single day, Badgerland Legend on Instagram and Facebook. I live in Madison, so it is often a topic of my my legends. So stay safe out there, stay weird, and we'll talk to you next time on Wisconsin Legends Podcast.